0: Take your Bibles with me and look at Luke chapter ch- chapter 3, third chapter of Luke's Gospel. As you know, we've been studying Luke and uh, we now move beyond the birth narratives and the adolescence of Jesus into the beginning of the years of his ministry. I've entitled this message and then what will be a part two to this, uh, Repentance, where true conversion begins. All true gospel proclamation begins with the message of repentance. You can't get away from it. And I know that evangelicalism has a, a bad habit of trying to soften that message and the church at her worst uh, turns it into something that was never intended to be because we're trying to reinvent the gospel proclaimed so that it eliminates alienation. It eliminates the initial confrontation that is bound up in the heart of the gospel. But all true gospel proclamation nonetheless begins with repentance and all true conversion begins when the human heart is brought to see their need. We say things in evangelicalism like God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You've heard that phrase over the years, the decades, and people mean all kinds of various things by that, and the hearer who listens to that message may understand it any old way they might choose others say well you need to um, invite Jesus into your heart and that has become a, a popular way of presenting the message of the gospel and yet again we're not really sure what it means some might even say you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins well in what sense you need to believe what believe it in what way do you need to acknowledge facts do you need to believe in the Jesus of the Bible or some other version of Jesus and what do you mean he died? In what sense? Was it a humanitarian death? Like someone gives a lung for someone else who needs it? Is that what we mean? just some way of laying down a human sacrifice? What do we mean by he died for sins? Whose sins? In what sense? A little bit of sin and a little bit of me mixed in with the goodness that I bring to God and that's enough? Is that it? One very popular ministry tried to boil every bit of the meat off the bone Of the gospel by saying, you just need to love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? As if someone's answer yes means they understand the gospel. This is why the gospel doesn't begin that way. And at the inception of the forerunner's ministry, in the announcement of Jesus' work for the sake of the gospel, there is this message of repentance. The very first gospel message proclaimed by the very first prophet of Christ's arrival... Not the Old Testament gospel, although it was clear then, but the very first proclamation by a prophet of the New Testament, speaking about Christ's arrival. Christ is on the scene. He needs to be introduced. And when he is, this is what the Bible says this forerunner came preaching. Luke chapter 3, verse 3. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That is of course no different than Jesus. The beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark 1:15 tells us that he said these words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of is at hand, kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. There is simply no gospel presentation that is faithful to what God intends without a call to repentance and Make no mistake, there's no forgiveness without the proof of a truly penitent heart. A heart that has come to Christ in real faith. Saying, I no longer rely on or entrust myself to me for my life and my eternity, but I entrust myself exclusively to someone else. To Christ. There is no such thing as a gospel without a call to repent. And there's no such thing as... Salvation without a truly penitent heart. Now, as we come to John the Baptist's ministry here and Luke begins to tell us how it unfolds, I want you to take a clear understanding of the components of repentance into this text. And so I just want to summarize them for you. Some months ago, many months ago, we did a study on the riches of our salvation, wherein I talked about repentance and its Old Testament concept, its New Testament concept, and then the component aspects that we ought to look for when we're looking for true repentance. In the Old Testament, main word groups for repentance, it basically involved two things. One of the word groups involved a sorrow or a regret, a sense of regret within... It it was a word group that meant to groan or lament. It's often used of weeping and grieving and lamenting. And then the other word was the word for to turn, to do a 180 and completely turn. And and the sense was that it was uh, by strict contrast to what was before it. So you have in the Old Testament concept, when repentance is... In the in the focus, in focus, this idea of an internal grieving and lamenting and a turning to go another direction, and when applied to the issue of moral change, it always meant forsaking the old and completely and utterly going in the opposite direction from the way you used to live. The New Testament carries those concepts in its main word groups for repentance uh, one word means to change one 's Perspective because you regret the old one. That's the idea. To repent means to turn and change one's mind. And literally, he means persp- it's used in the context of your perspective changes. I'll talk about that in a moment. The other word in the New Testament was, again, that word for to be convinced to go in the complete opposite direction. So all of these different forms of the word carry what the Old Testament laid forth. A grief over the old, a turning from the old, and a turning to the new, because a new perspective and conviction was there. And in those ideas, you have what I described months ago as the three basic elements to... The evidence of genuine repentance, which becomes part of John the Baptist's gospel message. First, there is the thought element. A change of perspective, listen, that recognizes and acknowledges guilt. Repentance begins when someone recognizes and acknowledges sin as involving personal guilt and defilement that leads to helplessness. So, I'm guilty, I am defiled before God, and I am helpless and in need of mercy. That's the first place that repentance begins. It begins in the thought life, which begins to acknowledge, in your perspective, that you're personally guilty and now helpless. Romans 3.20 calls it the knowledge of sin. You're this bad, basically. The second element is the grief element, and that is the element of the lamenting or the sorrowing over having worshiped oneself or sinned against the truth. When you finally realize by the Spirit's power that you are that person who is helpless, there is a grief, there's a remorse that comes. David described it in Psalm 51. This is a sorrow over being a sinner. Not just having sinned, not just feeling consequences of sin, but a sorrow over being a sinner. Before a holy God, I am that wretched. And there's a grief that's stirred up. A regret of having lived so long for yourself and offended a holy God who is loving, merciful, yet righteous. Righteous beyond us. So there's a thoughts element, there's a grief element, and then there's the conviction element. As I mentioned, this this belief that changes your will. This is a new conviction. A change of paths. A change of purpose. I was following my own self over here and I completely change because I'm convinced that I need pardon and cleansing and I am going to rush in this direction and follow Christ. That's the idea. And this is precisely what we find at the heart of John the Baptist's sermon introduction. When he preaches... Having come out of the wilderness, it says that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Luke is not about to let us miss the background into which the mercy of God explodes on the scene. Because notice in chapter 3, verse 1, he starts giving us these notorious names that will come up over and over again, some of them, in Jesus' life, particularly at the end of his life and ministry. Notice verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee and then Philip and uh, Lysianus, etc., etc. And then notice verse 2, Annas and Caiaphas in the high priesthood. What thrills Luke, and the reason he's telling us so much information here, it's not because it's a chronological marker merely. I mean, if that were the case, he would have just left it at... Tiberius. Oh, the 15th year of Tiberius. Everyone knows when Tiberius reigned. It's no big deal. No, Luke is driving home the overall theological reality when he pens his gospel. He's already talked about all of the ways that Jesus' arrival in his birth connects to Old Testament prophecy as messianic. He is the arriving Messiah. He's the one who will bring grace. He's the one who will bring joy and peace on earth. He's the one who is the face of God in front of men. He's the one who brings the pardon and the great grace and the favor and the blessing. And then Luke penned that little account of his adolescence at 12 years old. What was that? His humanity along with his messianic mission. He knew what he was here to do at 12 years old and was in the temple responding to his messianic mission even though his ministry wasn't to begin yet. And yet he was fully human. He developed like a human like the rest of us. What is that? He's the God-man. He can die for men because he's man. But he can die for men because he's messianic. He is God and he will be righteous where we can't. Luke is pushing all those themes forward and when he gets to the arrival of John the Baptist on the scene, he wants it against the backdrop of what was going on in the day. And fast forward from Jesus' adolescence 17 years and you have the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry and notice this truth is about to dawn on the darkest of times. In the reign of Tiberius, Luke's readers knew when... Tiberius reigned. They knew it. History records the gruesome details of the 500 year period in the, the reign of the emperors of Rome. Five centuries of absolute godless rule. The empirical office had absolute power. Men used it and abused it. The first of these Caesars or emperors, created the office single-handedly. He was a man by the name of Octavian. You would know the name Augustus. Uh, Julius Caesar died in 44 B.C. and then 17 years of civil war ensued and um, Octavian basically murdered his way to the control of the Senate and when he took power, gave himself the name Imperator. Imperator which was the imperial ruler. And the Senate agreed to give him the name Augustus, which meant splendid, majestic. He had all the power. He only had two people to get out of the way. And if you paid attention in your high school literature class, you read the story, the Shakespearean account of, of Cleopatra and Mark Antony. They were two individuals that Octavian had to get out of the way. And so while, while Cleopatra was in prison, she was the queen of Egypt, she was imprisoned uh, Octavian sent the lie over to Mark Antony that she was dead and so he drew his sword and took his own life but she wasn't actually dead and she finally ended up at his at his deathbed before he expired and he expired in her arms and she was so distraught she took the two poison snakes and had one of them bite her and she died and so now Octavian was on the throne and the two last power brokers were out of the way and so he was finally ultimate ruler Several years later, he formally adopted his stepson, Tiberius, and made him his son with full rights and privileges. By the way, when Luke refers to the 15th year of Tiberius reign, some have counted it from AD 14, the year Augustus died of an illness, but that would put... John the Baptist's ministry beginning, and Jesus around A.D. 29, making Jesus 33 when he began his ministry. That doesn't seem to fit the New Testament. Luke tells us in verse 23 of chapter 3 that Jesus was about 30 years of age when he began his ministry. So if he began his ministry when he was about 30, the time would be around 26 to 27 A.D. And since Luke says it's Tiberius' 15th year, it would mean that Tiberius pretty much had the power even under Augustus before Augustus died. And history tells us that's exactly what happened, although scholars might argue or quibble over it, it is true that in about mid AD 12 Tiberius was given power over every province except the city of Rome, and then about 8 months later he was given all the imperial power right alongside Augustus, his father-in-law or his stepfather and now adopted uh, adopting father, and so they ruled together until A.D. 14 when Augustus died and Tiberius had the final say. So basically, Tiberius is the second emperor in what will turn out to be 147 emperors in the 500-year history of Rome. And there were only five in the 147 that were called good. Only five. From Tiberius' reign onward, the spirit-filled church of Jesus Christ was under the political depravity and godlessness at the most shocking levels five of the first 11 emperors were assassinated two others committed suicide so that they would not be murdered the infamous caligula that took place took took office after tiberius was so perverse that it shocked even the most liberal roman citizens Nero, of course, as you know, who took over later, torched Rome and sat around celebrating as his great city burned. He blamed the Christians for it and then started a legal persecution to the death of anyone who named the name of Christ. One historian calls this time period five centuries of murder, incest, infanticide, sadism, sexual depravity, and madness. Tiberius, of course, was a weak leader, but... Luke mentions him here because everyone would know that he was a vile man. He, he lived most of his, his leadership in seclusion on the island of Capri, which he created for 24-7 immorality. And he practically raised the little teenage kid Caligula at that place. It was a vile place. Tiberius himself became paranoid in his later years. He executed anyone who breathed even the slightest threat against his throne. And, of course, in AD 37, uh, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. He was smothered with a pillow. In his bed, history tells us. And Rome celebrated in the streets. That's the context Luke wants us to be familiar with. And notice he goes on. Look at these noter- notorious figures. Pontius Pilate, governor of Judea. Remember Pontius Pilate? He, uh, he was a governor and uh, also called procurator. He acquired the post by marrying into the royal family. He married Claudia Procula, granddaughter of Augustus. And he was a sniveling guy and he always catered to... Uh, To anyone who was the highest bidder, and when he he got his opportunities, though, he hated the Jews, and he constantly inflamed them. When he first took post in Jerusalem, he marched through the the Jewish areas with Tiberius symbol, inflaming them. Then, uh, when somebody rose up against it, he slaughtered them. Did the same thing later on when he raided the sacred temple treasury to gain some money, and when he was uh, uh, opposed, he uh, had secret men placed around stabbing the perpetrators. Luke 13 verse 1 mentions another time when he deliberately took the blood of the slain Galileans and mingled it with the temple sacrifices and really upset them. Notice also Herod, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee. This, by the way, is the second Herod in the Herodian dynasty. There were four of them. The first was Herod the Great, tried to kill Jesus as a baby. You remember when the Magi came and he made the order to slaughter everyone from zero to two years old, every male child in the region. That was Herod the Great. And his son, Antipas, is the one who is mentioned here by Luke the territory after the great Herod's death was divided among his three sons. You had Archelaus, you had Philip, and you had Antipas. This is Antipas. He's the one who eventually will imprison John the Baptist and will behead him. Notice at the end of uh, verse uh, of this section, notice verse 19, when Herod the Tetrarch was reprimanded by him because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and because of all the wicked things which Herod had done, he also added this to them all. In other words, he added this to his rap sheet. He locked John up in prison. Eventually has him imprisoned. Philip, tetrarch of the Iturian and Trachonitis regions, that is north, northern part of the Jordan Valley, uh, stretching all the way east of the Jordan. It included the city of Philippi. This, Philip was probably known as the better of the, the brothers if one could be said in the Herodian dynasty to be anything good. And then Lycianus is mentioned as Tetrarch of Abilene. Luke's point in mentioning them them is, look, the Herodian dynasty was in power as client kings installed by Rome over Israel. Israel wasn't following God. They they weren't worshiping their God. They were blind and ignorant in their wicked sin and rebellion. And so, in oppressiveness, Rome would come in and assign client kings to, Uh, that did their bidding. And the Herodian dynasty was one of the most corrupt, uh, one of the most uh, money-grubbing, irreligious group. Luke says you had the emperor on the throne, Tiberius. You had this group of people who will figure very highly in Jesus' death. All of them at this point corrupt. Corrupt. You had the Herodian dynasty ruling over Israel in Israel. Why is Luke doing this? Because he's a Gentile writer writing to Gentiles. He's saying it's into this. Notice verse 6. It's into this context that all flesh will see the salvation of God. Don't you love that? Luke just can't believe it. The gospel is going to go beyond Israel. It's going to come to the Gentile peoples. And all mankind is going to see it. What a thrill that God would be so merciful to enter into evil cultures way beyond helpless. That's what captivates Luke. That's what thrills his heart. A Savior is born for all people, the angels had said in chapter 2. Luke records that. It got specific in chapter 2, verse 32. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And now the time has come. All flesh is going to see the salvation of God. But this is a time of moral infamy. And also religious hypocrisy. Verse 2. This also happened in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. (laughs) Annas and Caiaphas. Man, familiar names. You get to the trial of Jesus... The lies, the corruption. Guess who factors in? Annas and Caiaphas in the High Priesthood. According to Deuteronomy chapter thirty five, verse twenty five, the high priesthood was that office was held permanently, but the Jews were always angered by the fact that Rome came in and just deposed one and put up another just at will. Rome came in and told Israel what they were gonna have as as those in the high priesthood. Why? Because Rome could control them. And Annas was was a very powerful guy connected politically into Roman military might and political might. He was corrupt. He became acting high priest in 6 AD, but he was removed in 15 AD by the current procurator. And so he was de facto the high priest because he still had all this power. That's why Luke mentions both of them. There was only one high priest. But even though Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was appointed... Annas had been taken out of the position in 15 AD and replaced by his own son who lasted a year and then the Romans put the son-in-law in in, Caiaphas and guess who had all the power? Still, Annas had all the power. He and Caiaphas were puppets for Rome. Luke mentions Annas later in Acts 4-6 when there's preaching going on in the early church and guess who's behind the inquisition and the threats? Don't you preach this anymore I'll tell you why. It was Annas and it was Caiaphas because the preaching was disrupting their source of money. You see, it was Annas who was responsible for all the extortion practices on the Temple Mount. It was Annas and Caiaphas who put all that in place to fill their pockets. They were liars. They were conspirators. They were religious hypocrites. They loved money and power. And when it came to trying Jesus at the end of his ministry life, They were the conspirators who concocted the trial and trumped up false accusations. Luke says, that's the context. Moral infamy, religious hypocrisy, and yet, look at this, promised mercy. Verse 2, In the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. The son of Zacharias in the wilderness, chapter one, verse eighty. This John the Baptist continued to grow and become strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. At some point, because Zacharias and Elizabeth were older when John was born, they had died probably during John's adolescence, and he didn't go live with a relative. He didn't stay in the city. He didn't stay distracted by the commerce of busy life. He didn't stay in the religious center, Jerusalem, or the synagogues. He went out and lived in the wilderness because God didn't want him stained with any of that. 30 years after Zacharias had been promised by the angel that this son of his would make ready a people prepared for the Lord 30 years after Zacharias himself had prophesied that this son of his will go on before the Lord to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins And probably now 15 years plus or so after John the Baptist as a young adolescent went out in the wilderness, there he is by himself in barren places where no one comes. It is a wasteland, the the Judean wilderness, past the travel routes, past the trade routes, away from the Jordan River where no one would go for refreshment. It is out there where the Word of God comes to John. <laughs> the word of the living God in his mercy speaks to his prophet. There's no need to speculate about what happened here. This is prophet terminology, typical prophet terminology. What is a prophet in the Old Testament? A prophet is a person whom God had anointed and chosen by his spirit to put words from God into the mind of the prophet, or speak them audibly to him, like Moses. And that prophet spoke those exact words when he said, Thus saith the Lord. This is exactly what the Lord told me. This is exactly what he put in my mind, or spoke to me, and I delivered exactly like he wanted it to the people. And what was the standard? If God said something to the prophet, and the prophet delivered to the people, it needed to be 100% exactly accurate in every way, or he was not a prophet, and he did not get those words from God and he was to be killed. This is prophet language. Jeremiah 1 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying. Hosea 1 1, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. Joel 1 1, the word of the Lord came to Joel. So John is spoken to by God and he he walks out of the place where no one goes and and he walks into, notice the district Around the Jordan, he comes not to the city, not to the religious center, not to the synagogues, but to the fringe. What is God doing? Look, if his message is going to be repentance, and if John is going to soften hearts with the message that you're guilty, then only those who are softened by it, only those who actually hear it with spiritual ears upon whom the spirit is moving, they are the ones who then come. They want to hear. They come out of the city to hear him. There will be phonies in the crowd as he proves. But what's God doing? He's testing the hearts. He's not going to go into the city center where, where the message would get convoluted and the distraction of the religious center. That's going to be the job for the Messiah to go in and cleanse his father's house. Not the forerunner. The forerunner comes to the fringe and he, be, he begins to preach a baptism of repentance and see just who is soft enough to really mean it. Man, that's how we preach the gospel, isn't it? I'm not concerned with the result. I'd love to see everyone's heart soften as we preach the gospel to them. I'd love to see that. doesn't always happen, does it? God knows those that are coming. Because they're drawn to the light. And God knows those who run from the light and come with phony pretense. John came preaching. Notice verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And Luke immediately connects John with the words of Isaiah. You remember the prophet Isaiah? If you ever read it, 39 chapters of the most grievous, heartfelt, sad disobedience and rebuke and judgment promised. It's hard to read chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah without weeping. Judgment's going to fall. Brutality, rebuke, the foolishness of God's people, the wickedness of those to whom He has stretched out His promise of love. And then in chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, oh comfort my people. You know what He says? Speak kindly to Jerusalem. I mean, that just shocks you. After 39 chapters of Israel's rebellion and verse 1 of chapter 40 says, Oh, speak kindly to them. What kind of a God do we have? Speak kindly to them. Comfort. Why? Because I am going to restore them. There's going to be a voice crying in the wilderness. These are all from Isaiah 40. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. Now, notice what he came preaching. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's be clear. Uh This is a precursor to Christian baptism, which is told to us in Matthew 28. When you make a disciple, you're to baptize him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is not the exact practice of that baptism. This is a reflection of something from the Old Testament that has some of those elements mixed in. But it's not the actual instituted practice of church baptism yet. The practice of church baptism happens when you repent and believe in Christ and then... You get into the waters of baptism, ceremonial baptism, because you're demonstrating four things in in Christian baptism. First of all, you're demonstrating the death of the old life, right? When you go down into the water, it's the death of your old life. You have repented. You have left self-trust and self-worship. So the old man dies. And then when you are in the water, immersed in it, there's this cleansing reality. That is also pictured here in John's baptism. Cleansing. The water of washing. They had ceremonial washings. So cleanness, the fact that your conscience has been cleansed from dead works, is pictured in the water of baptism. And then when you're raised up, you're raised in resurrection power so that you can live a new life following Christ. And then fourthly, you're united to Christ. The reason it's immersion and the reason it's public is because you're saying, look, he's my Lord and Master. That's the old life. This is the new life. I follow him. I want to follow him. And I want to bear his reproach. As my new Savior. That's Christian baptism. Well, there was no such baptism in Jewish world, They had ceremonial washings that represented cleansing. But one thing they did do, and this is part of what's happening here, when a Gentile came to to want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they came into Judaism, they baptized the Gentile because they were an outcast. And so the Gentile had to be fully washed to come into the camp of God's people. <laughs> what John the Baptist is preaching to the people that are coming is look. Like, When you come out here, you must repent. Repent of what? Repent of being an outcast. You must admit you were outside of God's people. You must admit that you are outside of being righteous enough for Him. You must admit that even though you're in the covenant promise, you yourself must turn from self-trust. A heart of repentance that confessed being an outcast Who was in need. Now, let's also be clear about one other thing. Repentance is not a work that earns you salvation. He doesn't mean here that John came preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins as if to say, if you repent, you've earned your forgiveness. That isn't the point here. We know that repentance and faith are granted by God. You can't do anything to earn forgiveness of sins. Nothing. Luke will say that in Acts chapter 5, verse 31. Christ is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It has to be granted by God. Later in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, And when they heard this, they quieted down, glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. It is granted by Christ. Of him you are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. Even Paul tells young Timothy as a pastor in 2 Timothy 2.25, listen, you need to correct those who are in opposition to the gospel, but do it with gentleness if in case or if perhaps God may grant them the repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth. It's also true that you can't earn salvation by making faith into some sort of work that earns salvation. Faith is granted to you, right? Ephesians 2, eight. for by grace you are saved through Faith. And that, in other words, that salvation through faith, is not of yourselves. It is a gift. The saving work is a gift. Faith, repentance, all of it. It's a gift of God. Revelation 2.7, the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life. It's granted. Salvation and ultimate glory is granted by God. But it is also true that repentance and faith go together in the work of salvation Because they are a work of the Spirit, and they are the evidence that God is working. They are the evidence that God is working. So here's how it works. We call people to repentance and faith, not because they can make themselves righteous enough to produce repentance and faith, but because God calls sinners to do what he is willing to work in them. He calls us to soften our hearts, jettison the old light, the old heart of self-righteousness, and follow Christ and only Christ for our covering for sin. He calls us to soften our hearts, and when we soften, it is Him doing the work. We tell people to turn from sin and self-worship, and as the Spirit convicts, we see the evidence of a broken heart. We tell people to believe in Jesus Christ alone for sins, payment, and forgiveness. And when the, when the Spirit grants that grace, we see the evidence then of a heart resting in that mercy. And then they're convinced to follow Christ, that He is Lord. Now, he also adds here Isaiah's quote. Notice verse 5. Well, back in verse 4, Make ready the way of the Lord, make His path straight. Every ravine will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight, and the rough roads smooth. Now, he's quoting Isaiah because I, in Isaiah's imagery, this is very familiar imagery in, in this sense. There was, if, if a king was going to visit a region or cities, there was preparation made. And in that preparation, it didn't matter what it took, it didn't matter how much it took to make the road and the entrance and the celebration and the reception fitting. And so what Isaiah did is pull that oriental imagery into the idea of the Lord's arrival. And John the Baptist comes to preach repentance and belief in Christ in order to soften hearts of those who are beginning to see their need. And when they see their need, The imagery that he brings forth here is that you will do anything. You will go anywhere to jettison your old self-trust and to trust in Christ. It's like the pearl of great price. You will sell everything you have to have that pearl of salvation. You will not trust in your own resources. You will not look to your own destiny and control of it. You will not look to the things you used to love. You will not ground yourself in the things you used to believe in. You will not see yourself as righteous in and of yourself. All of you dies. And all of Christ is where you place your trust. And so, whatever's in your heart, any rough places, anything that would be an obstacle to the gospel, you remove it. Any mountainside where the dirt needs to fill in a dangerous ravine, they would do that to make the path clear for the king. So, any obstacle in the king's way, in Christ's way, you do what it takes to change the topography of your heart. Not your life, but your inward repentance you don't clean up your life in order to have christ he does the cleaning up of your external life you know what you do you die to self you repent of self that's what you do you turn from you should <laughs> love that you turn from you you don't bring anything to god it's not the idea of cleaning your life up before you turn to him Only He can renew your heart and change your desires and cleanse your conscience and fill your mind with truth and produce holy convictions. But the preparation called for here is true confession. I am helpless. I deserve nothing. To prepare your heart to honor the King when He arrives to deal with sin is to prepare your heart in repentance and faith. What did it involve? Remember what I told you at the beginning three elements there's a thought and perspective element there's a grief element and there's a conviction element a moving of your will you acknowledge that you are personally guilty the grief starts to begin to affect your life there's a regret I, I have lived for myself i am wretched i do bring nothing in fact all i've ever been able to do in my life is is just live for me You know, it's interesting. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, there's a kind of sorrow that doesn't lead to full salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, he says there's a sorrow that that is of the world and it produces death. What kind of sorrow is that? Well, you've seen people, they feel bad about their sin. They feel bad about their life. Some people even say, I hate myself. No, you don't. You hate your consequences because you've lived for yourself. Remember, no man hates his own flesh, Ephesians says. Don't you believe that self-esteem junk? Don't you believe it? People don't need to esteem themselves. You already do. You're born that way. The reason people say they hate their life is because they hate the consequences of guilt and sin. Of course, I do too. It's terrible. Consequences of sin and guilt are destructive. Destructive to the mind. Destructive to the emotions. To the heart. The life. It's terrible. It's terrible. The consequences of sin are so brutal on a human's life. Internally and externally. I get it. Of course you're going to say you hate those things. But it's not because you hate yourself intrinsically. It's because you hate having to accommodate anything else but yourself. And it's produced only destructiveness. You hate not having what you want. And only producing further destruction. God comes to you and says, you want a real sorrow? Through the Apostle Paul's pen in Second Corinthians 7, he says there's a sorrow that is according to the will of God. That's what John the Baptist preached. Notice it. We don't have time to go in. Our time is gone. We'll look at it next time. But look. The crowds were questioning in verse 10. What do we do? Oh, the man who has two tunics, share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. Oh, man. You mean you're going to ask me to give up my hoarding for myself and my material gain for myself and my coddling of my own life and sacrifice it for other people that don't do anything for me? Yes. Why? Because you earn your salvation? No, because it would prove repentance. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said, what do we do? He says, collect no more than what you've been ordered to. Stop extorting. Stop being greedy. Verse 14, soldiers questioned him. What about us? What do we do? Don't take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. Get rid of the heart attitude that exalts yourself, lives for yourself, takes from other people, and just, boy, is that a description of our culture or what? And this culture is absolutely accelerating into pagan debauchery, celebrating it and turning around and acting religious like they have some spirituality. John the Baptist came and he said, look, notice he says, bring forth fruits. Verse 8, in keeping with true repentance. Repentance. Don't begin to say, I am pretty good or I am not bad or my problems are someone else's doing or my sins are not my fault or my consequences are not my doing in my own life. No, you've loved yourself, worshipped yourself You've brought your own righteousness. You think God's going to accommodate that. You live for yourself. You destroy what, what, what could be there. And you do it in self-worship. And John the Baptist says, repent. Acknowledge in your perspective that you are guilty and, and helpless. And then begin to call on God to bring the sorrow of your life because you see that you've been offending His throne and you're without hope. And then in your convictions, turn To the only hope you have, Christ, you turn in faith. All self-trust is gone. Such a clear gospel, isn't it? There is, listen, there is no true gospel proclamation without speaking about repentance. In these terms. In these terms. In your heart, make it straight. Not clean it up from its wickedness. Christ has to do that. But... Get rid of the prideful obstacles, soften to the truth. And as you do, it'll prove that God is working. You will see the evidence that God is softening you. And if you're a Christian here today, and and you have, of course, like all of us, still weaknesses in your life, take a look at, at whether or not your repentance is shallow at times. There still should be these components reflected in our genuine repentance as Christians. When we come back to God and we say, I haven't been living for you. And we say to other people, please forgive me. There should be these same elements. I acknowledge that it's me, that I'm the guilty one. I acknowledge my need to not offend God and to do what's right and that I've traded the power of the Spirit for my own fleshly desires. And I come to you, O God, and I say, please forgive me. And I ask other people, please forgive me. And there's this new conviction that rises up within me because of the sorrow of living for self. And I say, Lord, thank you for empowering me to live new, a new life. We as Christians should reflect these same realities of the gospel every day. Because we know them by the power of God. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, here's the deal. What a grace and a mercy that as John the Baptist stepped out of the shadows and went into the fringes of the wilderness to preach a gospel in such a wicked, decadent culture. What a grace that you're sitting here and God gave you the privilege of finding your way here. It's all divine appointment, just like he directed the fish to one side of Peter's boat. He directed you here with all the other fish. And here you are. And it's a divine mercy in your life to hear about repentance. Soften your heart. Cry out to God for mercy. Believe only in Him. Trust Him. He's a sweet master. Trust Him. Turn from your self-worship and self-trust and turn only to Him. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the first part of this great... Section of the narrative where you came forth being announced by John the Baptist who had been so set apart. He spent all those years in the barren wilderness. And he came, as you said in Romans, at the right time so that you might die for the ungodly. That's us. He died for us. Lord, there's so many foolish, shallow Gospels, so many Gospels that intermingle concepts of true faith with the ugly self-righteousness of men who try to be good enough. And the Church has suffered greatly through the centuries because of error and false Gospels and fear of man and trying to remove the alienation. May we be like John the Baptist and come preaching... Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Calling men to be disciples of Christ and be baptized in His name. To believe Him instead of themselves. To repent of their self-trust. And then trust their lives in eternity only to Him. Lord, thank You for the cross. Thank You that John the Baptist was announcing the beginning of Your ministry, which You knew would lead to Your death as a perfect payment for our sin. Thank You for that. Thank you that you prepared our hearts and in your power the obstacles were removed and we finally knew you. We pray your grace upon those who've heard it this morning and we pray it, of course, for your glory's sake. Amen.